All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Great. So some of you got your notes. Excellent. So we've been having a study through this letter that was written to a church in Ephesus. By the way, that's on the western side of modern-day Turkey, in case you're wondering. And uh, it was God used the Apostle Paul way back nearly 2,000 years ago to write this. And it's a wonderful blessing for us to be able to read these words the Holy Spirit has revealed. And so as, as we think about these precious words, here's an important question to consider as we look at today's text from Ephesians 4. Now, what is the best way for somebody to know what is a genuine Christian? What is a Christian? Well, there's all kinds of ideas on that. Obviously, you see the word Christ and the word Christian. So a Christian is supposed to be a follower of Christ. Well, some people think, well, I can know I'm, I'm or somebody is a genuine Christian based on past experience. They've had a conversion experience or, you know, they've prayed a prayer or they go to church or they, you know, they're religious or whatever you want to fill in the blank there. But that, sadly, though, that is, that is not a reliable evidence of your salvation. The only reliable evidence of salvation is a present life that is reflecting Christ. That's what a Christian is, simply somebody who reflects Christ. I'm a mirror reflecting Christ, hopefully. A broken one, a marred one, a bad representation of Christ, but nevertheless I am a mirror. So I ask you, do you act and talk like a Christian? You say, well, what does that look like? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us to understand what that looks like, what that talks like, and he's just given us in the previous text, if you remember from last week, he's given us the principle of replacement. He's told us certain things to put off, certain things to put on, kind of like dirty clothes. You come into the house, and and God says, you take off your dirty clothes in the mudroom, throw them in the washing machine, go get a shower, and put on some clean clothes. That's what he's exhorted us to do. And so, as Apostle Paul does, he's not content to just explain the principle and, and just leave it. He always applies it to different areas of life. And that's what he's, he's doing here. And in fact, uh, Paul's going to actually name some sins. And in fact, five different sins are actually named in this particular section. And Paul's going to tell us, to avoid those sins, of course, but he he doesn't just leave it there either. He explains why we should do this. So let's come to God's Word now. Look at the words of the living God from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Verse 25, which starts with this. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God 
by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. May I remind you that this is written to Christians in a particular church in Ephesus in modern-day Turkey, but there is great application here for us who are also believers in Christ. And so I propose to you from this particular text this proposition that God wants you to live a godly life. God wants you to live a godly life. And so Holy Spirit is applying this to our lives, showing us and so we can see what is a godly life. How do I act like a Christian? What does a Christian look like and talk like? Well, there's various ways that we see here in this text. First of all, we are to speak as a godly person, according to verse 25. So notice the progression here with this principle of replacement. We're moving from lying to what is what is the lying supposed to be replaced with? Notice it's speaking truth in verse 25. And you say, well, what is a lie? Well, a lie is a, a statement that is contrary to fact, and that is usually spoken with the intent to deceive. Uh, for example, if I came up to you and I said, uh, if, I, if I tell you, well, it's, uh, it's noon, and then I actually discovered that my watch was wrong for some reason, did I tell a lie? No, I was in error, but I was not telling a lie. I wasn't purposely trying to deceive you. But if I gave you the wrong time on purpose so that uh, you, my workmate, for example, would be late to the meeting so maybe that I would get the advancement and make you look bad, then I have lied. I have purposely deceived for my own benefit in this situation. That would be a lie. But notice it there in verse 25 that God says, we have already put away falsehood. And by the way, the we is the Christians here in this church. The, a Christian is somebody who's already put off falsehood. Because God transforms your old self into a new self. You become a new creature, the Bible says. So how do we speak falsehood? How do we speak falsehood? Well, there's various ways this could happen. Let's just get practical. For example, we may falsely represent our work. Uh, when I used to work at LIC, uh, we, we had these little, like, uh, these, these timesheets that we had to fill out every day. And you were supposed to round up or round down to, to 15 minute quarters. And, uh, you know, some of my workmates were unethical. They weren't virtuous. So they, they would love to maybe give themselves an extra 30 minutes or maybe 15 or some, some of them tried to get away with even adding another extra hour of time onto their timesheets. But as a, a believer in Christ, I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. Because that would be a falsehood. Uh, we, we may falsely represent ourselves in various ways as well. It's very easy to present ourselves as having some amazing background of great significance that is not really true. We, we try to make ourselves look good in other people's eyes. Well, that's a falsehood if it's not true. 
uh, we may be tempted to, to uh, even even people who go to church can create controversies in churches by speaking of what we don't know, or we can even twist what we do know sometimes. Uh, we may misrepresent facts. This happens a lot. Falsehoods are very tempting to do, aren't they? Uh, how, how about if you're trying to sell your car? How easy is it to... Um, uh, make your car sound better than it really is to the buyer or a potential buyer. Or uh, we, we, we might be tempted to change our expense reports or uh, maybe misrepresent and twist things to the tax department. Or uh, if we have business dealings with somebody, we might, we might give a falsehood there. Or even uh, you know, there's all kinds of ways we could do this in our rents or our mortgages or even in a traffic violation we might... Uh, we might be tempted to a, to a falsehood, or if the, if a parent asks you a question, you might be tempted to give a falsehood uh, because you might be afraid of some consequences. Or if your spouse asks you a question, uh, there there can be that temp- temptation to even lie in, in a situation like that. There's many situations where we could give falsehoods, but why should we speak truthfully? Why? Well, notice God gives you answers here of why you should do this. He doesn't just tell you. He doesn't, by the way, He doesn't just command us to do this. These aren't options, by the way. You don't have an option. It's You, you do this, right? That's what God's telling us to do. But So He wants us to speak truthfully. Well, the answer to why we do that is because we're members of Christ's body. Now, the Holy Spirit's going to go on to tell us that the Christ's body, there's the church. And so literally, we are body parts of one another. That's, that's what the imagery here is. And, and if you think of a body, maybe this will help you out here. Think of a body. Consider what happens when your, your eyeballs don't communicate uh, the truth of something that is hot, and then your hand reaches out, because your hand doesn't have eyeballs, right? Your hand reaches out and touches something hot and gets burnt. What happened there? Well, I don't know. Did your eyeballs communicate truth to your hands? (laughs) And, well, in that case, no. The fingers got burnt, and it's not a healthy thing. And the body can't perform its functions if the members don't communicate what is true to each other. And that's what happens in a church. Sometimes. Truthfulness is dangerous, or a lack of truthfulness is dangerous. And what you say actually affects other people. It affects the church body, and it affects how it functions. When trust disappears, the work of a church body becomes, or I should say it comes to a screeching halt until that trust can be restored. That's why we should speak truthfully to one another. Well, there's a second thing we need to mention here in verses 26 and 27 we're to think as godly people think as a godly person notice again the principle of replacement as you put off the unrighteous anger and what goes in its place notice it's righteous anger goes in its place i know some of you were thinking something different right well we need to explain what anger is What is anger? Well, anger is an emotional arousal that is caused by something that displeases us. And how does a godly person then think? God wants us to be like Him, 
to think like he does. So what does that look like? Well, a godly person should think without uncontrolled or prolonged anger. See, the difference is Jesus, when Jesus lived on the earth some 2,000 years ago, he expressed anger at times. So it's not sin to express anger. The, the difference with Jesus was, though, it was controlled and it wasn't prolonged. And it had the correct object and the correct motive behind it as well. But note that the Bible here, in verses 26 and 27, does not say that we should never get angry. It didn't say that. Because verse 26 says, be angry. That's what it says. That's what God says. Be angry. But notice it's possible to not sin and be angry. That's what it says. So, it's possible to be angry and not sin. There are just causes for righteous anger. Can you think of some? I can't. How about injustice? Is injustice a right reason to be angry? Absolutely. Now, you might be thinking of the cancel culture that's happening around the world at the moment, right? There, there is cause to be angry over certain injustices we see happening around the world. The problem with, with, with a, a movement like this is sometimes the mob mentality kicks in and then they end up sinning and becoming the exact thing they didn't, they, they, that they're fighting against. You see the problem there. I hope you do. Uh, but there's all kinds of things like cruelty. For me, abortion just makes me angry that, that people would kill an innocent baby. Murder an innocent baby makes me angry, and rightfully so. That baby is made in God's image. There is sanctity to human life. It should make you angry. Right? There's there's reasons to get angry. That's how a godly person thinks. But here's another question. How should we not express anger? There are appropriate ways to not express your anger. Let Let me just give you some practical points. Number one, simply venting uncontrollably is wrong because one of the things that does is it's just reinforcing your anger see god says you're to be in self-control that is a fruit of the spirit self-control another way is just quietly harboring our anger some people just vent and they start pounding holes in walls and getting violent and ripping down statues and all kinds you name it right people can become extremely violent and out of control but sometimes people just kind of harbor their anger and it just slowly destroys them and all the relationships around them and and this happens through their resentment notice the verse by the way does not say do not let the sun go down on your dispute (laughs) i remember when i first got married I, i that's what i was thinking and we'd stay up to ridiculous hours of the night trying to deal with the dispute but god didn't say that you know, God didn't say, you can't go to sleep until the dispute is settled. Well, that might that could take weeks sometimes. That's not what God's saying. Instead, what he's talking about is our emotion of anger. We need to deal with that. And why should we be concerned about uncontrolled or prolonged anger? Well, verse 27 tells you. God tells you right there in verse 27. And he says, it, what it happens here is it allows Satan to gain a foothold in our lives. Now, we should not want that to happen, should we? I don't want Satan to have a foothold in my life. 
And I hope you don't either. Well, God goes on to tell us some more here. Number three, He says to act as a godly person. In verse 28, we see the put-off is stealing. What do you put in the place of stealing? Trick question. What's there? Verse 28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but... There's the contrast. But, rather... Let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Somebody in our church just last week was was giving me an illustration of this. When does somebody stop becoming a thief? Some people might think, okay, the thief stops becoming a thief when they stop stealing, right? No. Wrong answer. (laughs) According to God... The answer is, you stop becoming a thief when you actually start giving your money to other people. That's that's when you stop becoming the thief. So there's this progression from putting off stealing to sharing. Well, how does a godly person act? Well, basically, it's without selfishness. Because it's selfish to steal. How do we steal? Well, maybe this doesn't apply to you, but... uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit a few things here, uh, various ways we see this in our own culture. For example, some of the common ways that people steal are through unauthorized software usage, downloading music, pirated videos, just to name a few. <laughs> right? Those are very common. Another one is uh, shoplifting. Uh, shoplifting is a massive problem. Uh, around the world, large percentage of it, by the way, is done by employees. Some 30% approximately, according to some statistics I've read, is the stealing is done by employees. And so in some large stores, for example, a, a third of the price of the merchandise that you pay for when you go into the store is just jacking up the price because the employees are ripping off the company. Intentional overestimating on things, falsified cost overruns, outright embezzlement. These are all rampant throughout business and industry. Some of us might be tempted to pad expense accounts, or uh, we might be tempted to report more hours at work than we actually did, or we might fail uh, to report income to IRD, or there's all kinds of deceptions that are uh, some some people consider just normal in our culture. To them, stealing is is more like a game that is is okay as long as I don't get caught. <laughs> right? Is it okay if you don't get caught? That doesn't make it okay. Just because you're not feeling regret or shame at that moment. And so people commit grand larceny, petty theft. Uh, children take coins off their father's dresser. Or you might renege on some debt, or uh, you, you may not pay a fair wage if you're a, if you're an employer, or you might uh, pocket what um, some some clerk gave you because they gave you too much money and they didn't count it right. Have you ever given money back to to uh, a clerk because they gave you too much? You ever done that? And then they and then they look at you like, oh wow, thank you so much for being honest. Hard to find those kind of people today, isn't it? So stealing, of course, is a sin and has no part for a Christian. 
But what's the solution to stealing? Well, God says the solution is work. The alternative to stealing is to labor for this purpose. Notice what God says here. The purpose is so you can share with the person who has need. So it's God's plan for everybody to work who is able to work. All right, if you're not able to work for whatever reason, that's uh, that, that's a little different here. But notice uh, what God says in another passage here. I'll show you from Second uh, Thessalonians chapter three, verse ten. It says, "If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all." By the way, that's written to a Christians in a church at Thessalonica. And so, the Christian who does not work, the Bible says, um, and, and if this person's not working and not providing for his own, and especially for his own household, God says that person has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's in 1 Timothy 5. And so, our labor is something that's supposed to be honest. Did you see that? In verse 28, doing honest Work, it's supposed to be honest. In other words, it's honorable, it's productive. And the term honest there connotes that which is something that's good in our, in the quality of our work. It's, it's, it refers to a God honoring employment. You do understand there is, there is certain employment. It might even be legal, but it doesn't please God. And so a Christian should never be involved in a job or a profession or work or any business that demands compromise of God's standards that dishonors him or it violates one of his commands or it might actually mislead and harm other people. You shouldn't be involved in that. Why do we work? Why should we work? Well, it says, so that in doing something useful, we may have something to share with other people. See, not only should our work not harm anybody, but it actually should be for this specific purpose of helping people. So a Christian's desire to earn more shouldn't be just so they can become rich and and be selfish, but it's for the purpose of being able to give more and help more. So if God blesses you and gives you stuff and resources, use them. So beyond providing for your own and your family's basic needs, you're to gain so that you can give. Well, God goes on to tell us we're also supposed to speak as a godly person in verse 29. So it's not just what you do, it's also what you say. Notice what verse 29 says. You go from what? Corrupting words to what? To edifying words. So the sin that's mentioned there in verse 29 is what? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So the sin is this corrupting words. And corrupt there, by the way, by the way, it just means that which is worthless. It's what is bad, what is rotten. Foul language should never proceed from the mouth of a Christian. Why? Because it's out of character with who you have become. Well, that's the first couple chapters of Ephesians. Who have you become? What's your identity? Well, read chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. See, unwholesome language should be something that is repulsive to us. It should be just as repulsive as, say, a rotten egg. Do you like eating rotten eggs? No, that's disgusting. We don't eat rotten eggs. Uh, we shouldn't eat spoiled meat, right? 
because it's spoiled, it's rotten. And God's saying that sort of rottenness and spoilage shouldn't be coming out of our mouths. So off-color jokes, you know, the profanities, the dirty jokes, the vulgarity, and, and any form of corrupting talk should never cross our lips. You say, well, what are the characteristics of a healthy speaking then? Does God tell us that? Yes, he does. Notice there's, there's three words mentioned in our text here. First of all, the words of a Christian here are to be good for edification. And edification there just means it's building up. So our speech needs to be building up. How do you do that? By, by being helpful, by being constructive, by encouraging, by uplifting. And sometimes, sometimes you do need to correct people, okay? But, uh, of course, you need to do that in love. And so edifying, if it's done in the right spirit, can be uplifting, can be building up. Proverbs is filled with a lot of great wisdom. So let me just give you just one proverb here to consider. Proverbs 25.12 says, Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Be a wise reprover. Somebody who corrects with great wisdom and, and with great love. So you can be like the earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold. So the first characteristic, notice, of a healthy speaking is the word edification. But notice, second, everything we say also needs to be appropriate. So it needs to be appropriate because verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Can we all agree there are occasions where you shouldn't say something? I hope so. Because God says, as fits the occasion. It, it, by the way, it's not that every word we speak is to be weighted with great significance here, but that what we say should always be fitted for that situation, for that event, that, that time, so that it's constructively contributing to all. Now, obviously, there should never unnecessarily mention things that, that might harm somebody or discourage someone or disappoint someone else. Some things, just some things, though they may be true, <laughs> they might be perfectly wholesome in the words that they are, sometimes those things are better just left unsaid in that situation. Anyone admires the wisdom and the virtue of those who speak less often but usually say something of great benefit, right? Don't you love those kind of friends? And that's what Proverbs is talking about here. In uh, chapter 25, it says this, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Next screen. There you go. The right circumstances dictate what you say, when you say it, how you say it. Consider all that. Uh, A third characteristic of healthy speaking is this. What we say should be gracious. Why? God says, Gracious words, so that you may give grace to those who hear you. Now, verse 15, if you back up there, verse 15, we already saw that earlier, that a mature Christian not only speaks the truth, but the mature Christian speaks it in a a way that's loving. Raw truth is seldom appropriate and, and can sometimes be very destructive. And so we've been saved in grace. If you're a Christian... Uh, I, I'm being kept in grace. 
And I'm to live and I'm to speak in God's grace as well. And so just as grace supremely characterizes God, guess what? It's to supremely characterize who I am and even how I speak. What's the proper motivation? What's the proper motivation for having gracious words, building up words? Well, the proper motivation for putting off this corrupting talk is that not to do so is going to grieve the Holy Spirit. Did you see what verse 30 says? I can grieve the third person of the Trinity, who is the Holy Spirit, even by my words and what I do. Of course, all sinful, all sin is painful to God, but sin in His children breaks His heart. Just as when my own children sin, it breaks my heart. Do you think God's any different? When His children refuse to change the ways of their old life for the ways of the new, it grieves God. The Holy Spirit weeps, as it were, when He sees His children lying instead of speaking the truth. He weeps when when uh, we become... We, when I should say when we have unrighteous anger rather than a righteous anger. He weeps when we steal instead of sharing with people in need and, and also speaking corruptly instead of uplifting gracious words. He weeps. He grieves. He has emotions. And, and so God then comes to this last part here telling us how to act as a Christian. And he says there in verse 30, think and act as a godly person. Now, I'm just making that general because there's lots of things mentioned in verses 30 to 32. But notice the, the principle of replacement at work here. You are moving from your natural vices to what? To supernatural virtues. I love the two Vs. So vices to virtues. So you put off the old dirty clothes of vices, you need to put on the new clothes of virtues. So let's just think about these for a moment. See, God says to put off the vices Put off the vices. Things like bitterness. Bitterness is just something that's reflecting a smoldering resentment going on inside you. It's a brooding, grudge-filled attitude. It's the spirit of irritability that keeps a person in this perpetual animosity, making that person just become very sour and venomous. They're, they're being eaten alive from the inside out, and, and eventually they just unload that venomness attitude onto other people. You ever had somebody just blow up at you and you're like, whoa, where did that volcano come from? It's the bitterness usually coming from inside them. God also says to put off wrath. That has to do with this wild rage. It's the passion that some people get kind of get caught up in the moment. And then anger. It's a, it's a more internal smoldering. It's a subtle, deep feeling. And then clamor, that's not a word I use very often, but it's, it's the shout or the, the outcry of strife in my life. It's reflecting the public outburst that reveals me just losing control of myself. And then you hopefully know what slander is mentioned there in the text. It's that defamation of someone's character. It's, it's a verbal attack against someone. And it's again, it's coming from that bitter heart. And then the Holy Spirit mentions malice in the text. Malice is just a general term for evil. It's a root to 
all those kind of the other things mentioned, those various vices there. And all of those things, he says, have to be put away from you. Put them off. What goes in the place of those things? What goes in the place of the vices? Well, God says put on virtues. By the way, it's a command. It's a command in the original text of Greek. And so in the place of those vices, we're to be kind to one another. <laughs> wow, tender-hearted, forgiving each other? How are you to do that? What does that look like? Well, God says it's just as God has forgiven you. Well, if you're not sure what that looks like, I'll be happy to talk to you about that because what great news. As a sinner, I stand no longer condemned under God's judgment, but because of Christ who took my penalty for my sin, now I am free from my guilt and my shame and the penalty that I rightly deserve because God has forgiven me in Christ. Christ died in my place on the cross, so I don't have to. I deserve to die on the cross, but He took he took my place. And He's the only one who could have done that for me because I'm a sinner. I can't die for me. <laughs> There's plenty of people who die for themselves and still spend eternity in hell. That will never save you. You need the perfect Lamb of God who died, lived the perfect life, and then rose again and conquered your guilt and your sin and death itself. And so, what great news here. These are graces that God shows to us. They're the gracious virtues that we're also then to show to other people. See, God didn't, He did not love us and choose us and redeem us because we deserve that. But He does it because He's gracious. Do you, do you, you understand that? I'm not a Christian because I deserve it. I'm not a Christian because I'm a good person. I'm not going to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm going to heaven because there is the only one who is good died in my place. And that's what the Bible says in Romans 5, verse 8. Look at this. See, God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. See, it's not me. I can't save myself. Jesus does this for me. And so if God is so gracious to us, how much more then should we be kind and tender-hearted and forgiving to other people who are sinners? See, you know what enables... If, if I am gracious to you and forgiving to you, which I'm not always that way, unfortunately, but if I ever have a moment in my life when I am, it's only because I recognize I'm the greatest sinner I know, and I am forgiven by a great sinner, a Savior, sorry. I'm forgiven by a great Savior. Therefore, I can look at you as a fellow sinner who is also a forgiven sinner, hopefully. That's the way it happens. And so, tender-hearted, what a great word there in the text. See, tender-hearted has the idea of being compassionate, reflects a feeling deep within my bowels, deep within my stomach. It's a gnawing pain that, that's coming from this empathy for somebody's needs. Forgiving each other is so basic to reflecting Christ-like character because that is God's character. And the most graphic illustration I can think of of forgiveness actually comes from one of Jesus' teachings we call parables from Matthew 18. And it's interesting, uh, 
the Apostle Peter uh, asked Jesus, what are the limits of forgiveness? And, and Peter being Peter was a bit cheeky and says, uh, well, how many times do I have to forgive somebody, right? Be- before then I can just let them have it, right? You ever feel that way? All right, you know. And, and Peter was being very gracious when he when he mentions the number seven. But anyway, the Lord Jesus Christ ended up telling us a story of a, a man who was unable to pay a debt. The debt was so massive, there is no way that he could ever repay this debt. He couldn't repay the creditors, who, by the way, ended up being, there, there was a king involved in the story. And uh, so he, he, ends up, he ends up coming to the king in the story. But the, uh, the, the picture, this, this is a picture here of salvation going on that Jesus is trying to teach us. See, God forgiving a sinner, the unpayable debt of an, an unrighteous rebellion against him is amazing. A debt that you could never repay, has, the king has forgiven. King Jesus forgives the unpayable debt, which you can't repay. And so the forgiven man went to somebody who owed him a very small amount, and had, and, and he wasn't gracious to that man, and actually had him thrown in prison for non-payment, as if that's going to help. But anyway, he he who eagerly accepted this massive, comprehensive forgiveness would not forgive a very small, easily payable debt. Do you see the incongruity there? I hope you do. See, the incongruity of his actions showed the heinousness of, of a believer's unforgiving heart. See, Jesus is getting to the heart issue here with us See, um, the, the man, by the way, was so severely chastised by his Lord for his wicked attitude. And that very man was also thrown in prison, by the way, for his ungodliness. And so, that's a good illustration from Matthew 18 of, well, don't, yeah, accept your forgiveness, but don't, but don't go and then, and then not show forgiveness to somebody who just has a little debt to pay. So Paul has this same relationship here in mind as he calls for believers to forgive just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Do you see the correlation? Every human being has a massive debt that you can never repay. We're all like this. And you need King Jesus, who's the only one rich enough to pay your debt. And He did! The question is, do you believe that? Are you trusting in King Jesus? That's the issue. And so, can we who have been forgiven so much not forgive the relatively small things that other people do against us? I know, they may not feel small at the, in certain moments in our lives, right? See, we should always be eager to forgive. And the only way you can do that is to recognize the great amount that God's forgiven you. So my friend, notice what's going on in this text. See, God wants us to live a godly life. God wants us to act as a Christian should act, reflecting Christ. The question is, will you yield your life to God? Will you? It's the only way this is going to happen. See, you can't just manufacture this on your own. You cannot do this without God's enabling. So my, if you are not a Christian today, 
this will not get you to heaven. You can live this perfectly, and it will not get you to heaven. Right? Good people don't go to heaven. Saved people go to heaven. Big difference. See, Jesus is the only one who said he's good. You have to trust in him. So you can't just somehow manufacture this on your own and think, well, if I do this, this is somehow going to get me to heaven. It doesn't work that way. And, and Christian friend, by the way, you can't do this on your own either. And that's why you have to yield to the one who enables you to do this great work in you. See, I need God's enabling to, to do this, so do you. Yes, it is a command. It's not an option to, to do all these things that are mentioned here. And so, pray, yield, and enable God to do this work in you, my friend. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're so thankful for these glorious truths here. Thank you for revealing uh, this to us. What, what does it look like for uh, us to be Christians? So may we apply the Bible to our lives in every parts of our lives, not, not just to certain areas, but to every area. So would you enable us to be like Jesus Christ? And we're thankful for His work that He has started, and we, we think of Philippians 1, verse 6, that says the great work He has started, He's going to complete it. I'm looking forward to glorification one day. He's going to, he's going to complete it. He's promised, and may we hold on to that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.